0: past present future live in-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music
1: from osiris media this is past present future live i'm your host rjb today's guest is rhett miller Rhett is best known as the frontman of the Dallas-based alt-country band, The Old 97s, but he's also a critically acclaimed solo artist. In the 27-year span of his career, he's released over 11 albums with The Old 97s and eight solo albums, and he has toured relentlessly. He's a prolific writer and observer of creativity, and in 2019, he published a children's book and launched a podcast called Wheels Off. For this episode, Rhett joined me from his home office which is also the place where he performs live shows every week for his fans while everyone is sheltering in place. You'll find a special playlist with all the music we discuss in this episode in the show notes. Enjoy the show. Hey, Rhett. Thanks so much for joining. How are you doing, man?
0: I'm great. How are you, RJ? I'm
1: doing well. This is going to be a fun conversation. I want to go all the way back to start. What's your first musical memory?
2: Mm,
0: I remember... Being in a bathtub singing the Beatles song, Nowhere Man. And I remember in the middle of it, but this is also, I think, because it's one of those memories that's been reinforced by my mom bringing it up a few times. I remember asking her after I finished singing the song, is that song about dad? Oh, and I uh, you know, Freud would love that.
1: Wow. Was there a lot of music playing around the house when you were a kid?
0: My mom was a giant music fan and uh, she loved to sing. So she would disappear to sing in the choir at church or I would, you know, be sitting um, in the church watching her sing in the choir. She whistled around the house a lot. At a really young age, I started singing in the church choir as well. My dad was a big music fan, too. He was more of a lyrics guy, where uh, for him, it was a lot of, um, you know, folk music, Arlo Guthrie, and uh, he really loved this 1950s mathematics professor turned novelty singer, um, Tom Lehrer. Oh,
1: wow. I don't know him.
0: Yeah, so there was a lot of music around the house, and it was kind of a nice combo, I think, because my mom really loved melody, and my dad really loved lyrics. So between the two of them, I kind of had both sides of the musical equation.
1: Growing up, do you remember the first album that really spoke to you, or an album that you fell in love with and couldn't stop listening to?
2: Mm.
0: When I was eight years old, my parents took me to see the Kingston Trio at a dinner theater in Dallas. I think it was called Mama's Dinner Theater or something. And the Kingston Trio, by then, were already – this was 1978. At that point, they were already a nostalgia act. You know, they'd been around for over a decade Mm – so it was pretty cool getting to see this musical act that I'd heard via my parents' record player so many times and I remember going home after that and by myself for the first time putting a record on. So I was like taking charge of, you know, my musical um experience after having seen them in person, but I do definitely remember during that show having a moment where it occurred to me that they were human beings. Like they were just like me. They were just like my parents. It was a later show when my parents, like a year or so later, we went and saw them again. And my parents, who were not like hippies or, you know, backstage type people, invited the uh Kingston Trio to come over after the show and have dinner at our house. And they did. Wow. Which is insane because my dad's a lawyer and my mom, you know, they they were just kind of square mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. way. I mean, no no offense if they're listening, but the Kingston Trio, I guess, were also a little square. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But they came over and they hung out. I think they might've even gone to play racquetball with my dad. But having the Kingston Trio in my house definitely drove home the idea that they were just guys you know they were just people that was something that would become a theme as i was finding myself drawn to the business of or the the calling of music i kept seeing these people that in my mind, to begin with, I would think that they were on another plane in another world. They were—they must be—they must know some secret that I don't have access to. But then I would watch them do something that would humanize them to the point where I would realize, oh, they're just doing a job, and I want to do that job.
1: Was other like pop and folk music interesting to you along the lines wow. of Kingston Tree? Like, where, did that open doors for you musically, or was that just like a, a thing that your parents were intrigued by?
0: There was a lot of music around. And like a lot of kids in the 70s, um, you know, the, the echo of the Beatles was so strong that it kind of overtook everything else. So Rubber Soul was a giant in my house and then in my life. And and uh, again, I think like a lot of kids my age, you know, the um, the Beatles were something that started as my parents and became mine. Um, pretty quickly. So I I took them over, and I felt like I understood them on a level my parents could never possibly understand them. And so, yeah, the Beatles were big. And then the things that I was drawn to after that a lot of times – Kind of had to do with the way they grew out of the Beatles, like uh, the Kinks, and even David Bowie. You know, I really loved the Britishness of Bowie because, as much as he was like a, a child of the universe, he was very British, and he had that weird accent that wasn't Cockney and it wasn't posh, but it was it was it was a kind of British that felt to me like maybe what their version you know, growing up in Texas of the accent that my dad had. And like, I'm a seventh generation Texan and by all rights, I should have a drawl. So Bowie's, whatever that was, Bowie's British dialect felt to me like the UK version of whatever the Texas thing was that I was trying desperately to escape.
1: (laughs) I was wondering about the escape aspect, because I know you had like some struggles in your childhood and and in your teenage years, you you, you had some illness when you were a kid. And I know you were You've talked before about dealing with bullying and things when you were a teenager, and it seems like some of this music was an escape for you. Was that escape a big theme for you in discovering music?
0: Yes, Music was a thing that got me bullied initially like in grade school. Uh, I always wanted to do the solo. I always wanted to be in the in the school play and the school concert. And I did. I remember doing the solo in second grade. Starting in second grade after that, they would call me opera singer and you know, and I'd get kind of bullied or, or beat up a few times and 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 I kept thinking like you're calling me opera singer and you guys I don't think you realize that's a compliment. Like you're you're basically saying that I sing well and because I like singing and hope to sing well, you're just kind of complimenting me and then acting like it's something of which I should be ashamed and I refuse to be ashamed and so yeah, it was it was a thing that got me beat up but at the same time I never felt bad about it i never felt i never bought what they were trying to convince me of which was that the thing that i loved was something that was shameful or embarrassing like i knew that this thing was magical and it was going to take me places that they could never even dream of going you know and not just in terms of like oh my god i'm going to get to go to Wherever play a festival in Madrid or whatever cool thing, I felt like like a lot more in tune with the universe, with people around me. It I feel like it music because it is so driven by empathy and being in tune, like literally in tune with the world. It gives you access to things on a deeper level than if you're just trying to profit off of the world or if you're trying to figure out how can I convert this interaction into cash.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, you mentioned like the magical aspect of it. It's funny because that's the way I would describe David Bowie as a sort of presence in the world. Were there other artists like that who represented this kind of magical escape from from what you were doing day to day? I felt like
0: every artist that I listened to, whether it was... Aztec Camera, which was a Scottish band fronted by a really young guitar prodigy, Roddy Frame. You know, and they just seemed like aliens. But then there was ZZ Top, who, you know, that was the first record I bought was Degueo, a ZZ Top album. I bought it in a grocery store. But, you know, all these people, they, they just seem like they're doing something that's so weird and magical. But at the same time, I really loved getting to watch each of them long enough to figure out that what they were doing wasn't magic. Or or maybe it was in that I'm now friends with some magicians. What they do is not, you know, spoiler alert, actual magic, like Harry Potter magic. You know, they're doing sleight of hand and tricks, and it's all about practice, and it's all about repetition, and it's all about expertise in one's field. And so when I watched these musicians long enough after doing it enough myself, like it all just slotted into place so clearly that this was magic but it was the kind of magic you could actually learn how to do and get better at
1: that's that's amazing that's a really good analogy because that's what musical success is built on right is those things repetition and practice and becoming an expert do you remember when you picked up a guitar and started learning and playing and, and maybe even coming up with your own songs for the first time
0: My brother is a more natural musician than I am. He was self-taught pianist, self-taught guitar, bass, uh, violin recently, like in his adult. He's like, I think I want to learn to play violin. He just went and taught himself. And so I watched him, and he was a couple of years younger than me. I watched him so easily doing these things that, you know, like I said, were at the time felt to me like they were, you know the province of some, you know, somebody who'd been an, anointed by the gods or something. And here's my little brother uh, doing it um, without even taking lessons. And so I thought, OK, I can do this, too. And um, I we'd gotten a Yamaha acoustic guitar. And at 12 years old, I tried really hard to learn how to play it. And God, it hurt my fingers so badly. And like a lot of kids at 12 years old, I gave up after just a couple of months. And I, I threw in the towel and then i started thinking um after i'd quit i started thinking about songs and just a little bit i knew of how songs were written the verses it's going to go a g a g a g but then when it goes to the chorus it's going to be d a and and so i started thinking about the building blocks of the songs and and then i started thinking well god in the, in the verse they're kind of telling like the this little story and it's always different but then in the chorus it's kind of always the same thing or pretty much the same thing if I wrote a song, it would be, and then the next thing I know, I'm thinking, "Ah, I'm going to have to learn how to play guitar so that I can write the song that I'm thinking about." So at 13, I went back and I got over like the the tricky part of um, my fingertips hurting, and once I'd gotten past that, there was no looking back because at that point I was like, "Okay, I'm, now I'm writing songs," and I was writing song after song after song, and they were so bad. Like the first songs I wrote were laughably bad, but, I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Like, you you got to write them and just get them out of your system, and that way you can look back at them and think, okay, well, first of all, me writing songs about Charles Manson, which was like my first song I wrote, was, was a song about Charles <laughs> Manson that was so stupid. And then, um like, that's not... That's not that doesn't feel natural to me. Like I it, for me it would be more natural to write songs about like minute uh interactions between people and how awkward it is to talk to other people and to be in relationship, you know. So then I started finding what I later would realize was my voice. Like my not just my singing voice, which actually I felt like that took me a l- much longer time to figure out my actual singing voice, but my voice as a writer, like that was really fun to realize, oh, I have one and I can make it better by by using it.
1: You became a writer and a musician both. Did you discover writing as a pursuit alongside music first, later? I'm just trying to piece that together. Like, did you know that you wanted to write and then that came into music or vice versa?
0: I just now am realizing that music came really early to me and writing as I got deeper and deeper into becoming uh, a lover of fiction and proper literature, writing to me felt like something that I was really drawn to. But in those early years, they felt like they were competing. And it wasn't until well into adulthood that I realized that I had found a job that flexed both of those muscles and used both of those disciplines. But at the time, you know, like I, I was doing music every, like maybe three nights a week, I was going down to Deep Ellum, like the, the dangerous downtown rock and roll area. Mm-hmm. And I was playing folk music opening for punk rock bands most of the time and hanging out and watching shows and making friends with all the local musicians. Um, but then in school, I was also really falling in love with fiction as a reader and a writer. And so when I was um, coming to the end of my high school career, I had released an album and it had gotten you know a good review in Billboard magazine. And this seemed like something that was really calling me. Um, but at the same time, I... Had gotten full scholarships to uh, Bennington and Sarah Lawrence, which were the two best creative writing schools in the country. And so, like, it seemed like a battle between these two vocations. Like, either I'm going to go to college and I'm going to study writing and I'm going to be an intellectual and I'm going to write fiction and that's going to be my life, or I'm going to drop out and I'm going to be a musician and I'm going to, you know, party down and have fun. And then, probably when I turn 30, I won't be able to do that anymore because old people don't do rock and roll. and then I'll learn how to do music. And that was what I chose, thinking that I was completely turning my back on that side, like the the side that would involve a love of language and you know the subtlety of, you know, being a writer who who used the English language to convey, you know, sort of the human experience. But as I got into my career, I realized, oh my God, what I'm doing is really using the creative writing muscles. Uh, that I thought I had you know put on the back burner and shelved until you know my golden years to make myself write the kind of songs that I really wanted to hear, which ideally would be songs that were a little more complicated that had some subtext to them that really wrestled with um more complex relationships between people and used the kind of words that felt juicy and evocative to me like I would as a proper writer.
1: Mm-hmm. And you did end up leaving college. You, you went to Sarah Lawrence to study creative writing, and then you left to go play rock and roll in New York, right?
0: Sarah Lawrence was in New York, and so I would go do gigs at CBGBs while I was there. And then when I dropped out, I moved back to Dallas. And Murray and I, my bass player in the old 97s still to this day, Murray and I started a band called Sleepy Heroes in the wake of my dropping out. My parents were so mad. I mean, imagine a full scholarship to the most expensive school in the country. Mm -hmm. And we we didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have money for me to go to college if I hadn't got that. And then I just turned my back on it after one semester. And even... At the time, I thought it made sense. And now looking back, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. My, how did they not murder me? Um, but so, yeah, moved back to Dallas and was really a part of the Dallas music scene until the late 90s when the old 97s were really taking off. And I fell in love with a girl who lived in L.A. and I moved there.
1: So you were quoted in another interview as saying, when Nirvana broke, Murray and I just looked at each other and said, we can't do this anymore. They just did it so well. Nirvana made us stop playing music for six months. Can you expand a little bit on what that mid-90s grunge movement did for your own music?
0: That was a weird time in music because the 80s were either hair metal, which was making money, or punk rock, which wasn't making anybody money but was super fun. And then what I was doing wasn't either of them. It was like this kind of post-folk music I remember going to see the Smiths on my 16th birthday, and they had an opening act who was a self-described Jewish lesbian folk singer, Frank, with a PH and a hard C, is how she would always describe herself. Frank got out there by herself with an acoustic guitar opening for the Smiths at the Bronco Bowl in Dallas and slayed the crowd. It was so great. She played The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, a Bob Dylan song, Mm -hmm. and uh, like to me, it was this transformative moment because I was trying to figure out, you know, what what to do, like kind of embarrassed that I liked the kind of folk music and acoustic guitar kind of soft stuff uh, that I liked. And here she came out and did it in front of like a rock and roll audience by herself. And it was so great. So that kind of gave me permission to do what I was doing. But then in the early 90s, it got harder and harder to do it. And I was also coming off of having put out a record in high school that got good reviews. Billboard magazine had pinpointed me as somebody to watch. I think the quote was, A, and our guys will be knocking down this kid's door. And, you know, that was heady stuff, Mm -hmm. because at the time, the CD boom had given the music industry so much money. There was just so much cash. It was like a gold rush in the early 90s, because all of the old catalogs, the Eagles catalog, and all these, whatever, every artist that had, you know, five or six records that they could then turn around and resell on CD format, um, it was just cash it was a cash grab. So Murray and I were trying to put together these bands that would get signed and make a ton of money, and that is never a good place to come from. Was that the goal? When Murray and I were making these bands in the early 90s, we were doing music we liked, and we were still trying to make good music, but it was never far from the front of our mind that we could do what the Buckpets did, a local band, and got Mm -hmm. signed. You know, Funland got signed to Arista. Like, our friends were getting money from major labels, so this was a thing that was out there. The brass ring was within our reach, and so I do think that it kept us from being as true to ourselves as we could have been. And so, yeah, when when the grunge explosion happened in 92, 93, these two or three years we had spent kind of floundering, kind of trying to be somebody we weren't, it all suddenly became very clear to us that... We were doing something that was kind of based in this fraudulent pursuit of this kind of cool that wasn't who we were, this grungy cool, you know. I didn't know how to make a good distorted guitar sound, and I was only doing it because it seemed like what you were supposed to do in 1992. And so it really was, like, days after Nirvana played on Saturday Night Live, and Murray and I were living in this scuzzy apartment together... And we just looked at each other and we went, this has passed us by. Like, at some point, this thing that we're trying to be a part of kept going and we got left behind. And it doesn't feel good anymore. And so we bailed out. We stopped. We At that point, we had moved on from... Sleepy Heroes into all these bands, and they were like forgettable bands. Uh, Buzz, Rhett's Exploding, Rhett Miller's Third Eye, like just band after band after band, trying to be something we weren't. So yeah, we took six months off. Murray came to me goes, what if we do a band where it was just like acoustic guitars, I'll play acoustic bass, Uh, it'll be like coffeehouse music, we will not stand a chance of being signed, and it'll take all the pressure off of us, and we can do something that we like. He had been really getting into these uh, country music box sets Mm -hmm. and um, you know Carter family and who's a grandpa Jones and and I'd really gotten into Hank senior like the like the purity of Hank Williams Mm senior to me was so unimpeachable so I thought yeah let's let's do this it'll be fun we won't have to worry about getting rich and ironically of course that was the thing that worked finally
1: Obviously, the moral is you follow your passion and don't try to do things because you think they're going to be successful or or for monetary gain. But you end up revolutionizing kind of this new genre, which I think now is just alt country. But I was going to ask about the sound, but it sounded like you guys, you did know what you were going with because it was very different at the time what you guys were doing. And did you try to create a new sound or was it just influenced by this music you've been listening to and kind of seeing what happened?
0: We never had a discussion like, oh, we're going to start a new genre. Mm -hmm. I think we were painfully aware that what we were doing was so uncool. Mm -hmm. But I think that really made us feel all the more sort of validated Mm -hmm. because Murray came from the world of punk rock. Like, Murray would publish punk rock fanzines. And Murray, when, like, um, the Dead Kennedys would come through Dallas, they'd sleep on Murray's floor. So for Murray... The idea of doing something that was patently uncool, that the establishment was telling you was stupid, like, that was perfect for him. (laughs) And for me, it took a little, like, I'd always come from a place of being such a people pleaser. Like, I almost felt like I was always chasing what was cool. Which is never a good place to be in because, you know, if you're chasing something, you're by definition behind. And so when we made the choice to give up on trying to get rich and trying to be cool and be en vogue, when we decided that we would just do the thing that felt natural to us, it was such a a load off of me. It was so much pressure off of my shoulders, like feeling—it was almost that feeling of now we've lost— So we can kind of start over again, like we had given up, but it very quickly went from feeling like we'd given up to feeling like, well, now we're back to the place where we feel comfortable. We're like the underdogs. And so, yeah, I guess if we ever felt like we were inventing something, it was kind of like a middle finger to the thing that made us feel so excluded, you know, the kind of cooler than now grunge movement, where if you didn't have your bona fides in order, you were not invited into the cool club. And, um, and we just felt like, you know what, let's start our own club.
1: And it worked. I mean, you guys, so you guys really broke out in, I think, 95, but made a ton of records in the 90s. And at some point during that time, you moved to LA, as you mentioned earlier, and sort of became part of that scene. What was that transition like for you, going to a new city in the middle of a successful run that you guys were having?
0: So when I moved to Los Angeles, it was in the wake of. Uh, the old 97s having been courted and feted and wined and dined by 15 major labels, uh, eventually signing to Electra Records and making our first super expensive record. And when that record was finally coming out, uh, during the kind of press push for that, I was staying at the world famous Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, the rock and roll hotel yeah. <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard. And um, a girl that I'd known had been a couple of years ahead of me at the sister school to my all-boys high school, who was like a really – like, I'd always uh, had a crush on her. She was older and cooler Mm -hmm. uh, than I was, you know, when we were in school. And then years later, there she was, and she was an indie film producer. And she and I, you know, reconnected and fell in love. And so I followed her out to Los Angeles. and. I guess it felt really natural because I'd spent so much time in LA during the whining and dining and uh in, in New York City and I suddenly felt less like a citizen of sort of lower East Dallas, you know, the the hard streets that I had spent so many years at that point just kind of living in squalor on. It felt natural To step up and go to a big city and my A&R guy Tom DeSavia that I'm still really, really close to all these years later. Tom lived in L.A. and um, it just felt like the right next step. I don't think I ever had it in my brain, like I'm going to move to L.A. and it never felt like it was a step towards getting famous, mm-hmm. but I did want to feel like I was closer to where people were making bigger, more legitimate art because when you're in a city long enough like Dallas, and especially if you become the band in Dallas that's the most popular band, you get sniped at. You know, it's that perch is a perch um people can throw rocks at you up there, whatever. We were lucky. People in Dallas were always very, very good to us. But at a certain point I did kind of feel like all right, it's time maybe to move on. And uh, and it was perfect because in L.A. at that time, there were a lot of young artists who were just really starting to do interesting work. There was a club called Largo that I fell in with there. There was a bunch of actors and comedians that I was able to make friends with, many of whom have gone on to be you know, really successful and make really interesting, brilliant things. And so it wasn't so much about, I'm going to position myself in a place where... I can cash in and be a star. It was more like, oh, my God, this is so exciting being around all these people who are all around my same age doing interesting stuff.
1: And I was going to ask you about Largo because that's sort of a famous club. And curious about some of your peers who you looked at or looked up to or learned from during that period. Because so many people came through there and, and like you mentioned, were growing and kind of propelling their careers at the same time you were.
0: So the Largo scene had a lot of levels to it. Flanagan, who owns and runs and hosts and is the longtime face of Largo, has always done a great job of sort of curating the community. So there would be established people like Colin Hay from Minute Work or Amy Mann to to even much bigger stars who would sort of roll through. But there was always like a young up and coming. And even to this day, he's really got his pulse on sort of who are the up and comers. And so at the time, there were a lot of comedians and actors that it was really great to be around. But of course, for me, it was most inspiring to be around the musicians and um, John Bryan being sort of the the main man of Largo he would play every friday night he would jump up with um, most of us that were the regular sort of headliners at Largo and play with us that crew at the time was just so incredible fiona apple who was i mean i, I was actually about to say that fiona was at the peak of her output although now she just put out a new record and it's arguable that she's <laughs> right back right back at the peak of her output right. But Fiona Apple was just so incredible because she is she had survived being what might have been sort of a one hit or one album wonder and gone on to make these really challenging, brilliant records uh, with John Bryan a lot of times, and then um, Elliot Smith, who had kind of risen up out of the sort of punk rock, weird indie rock world and become this unlikely hero of kind of the pop rock thing that we all loved so much. One thing that was so inspiring to me, although at times dismaying, was to see how eaten up with insecurity these folks were, like Elliot, most of all, but but also Fiona. I remember early on in my days at Largo, I did a four person song swap for charity, and it was John Bryan and me, and Fiona and Elliot, and we were about to go on stage. And we were in the little attic room, which was the backstage at Largo. And John and I were just laughing and goofing around. And, you know, I was nobody at that point. Not that I'm anybody now. But back then, I was really nobody. But Fiona, who had had big hits, and Elliot, who had just been on the Oscars, they were on the couch next to us. And they were both just so nervous and Elliot kept saying "Oh, I can't even believe I'm going to have to go out there and be next to you guys and they're going to hate me and I'm like looking at them going you guys are literally the most brilliant singers and songwriters I've ever been around what are you doing it's always stuck with me The idea that you don't know who you are. It's like in No Exit, the Sartre play, where these people are trapped in hell. And one of the things that drives them crazy is there's no mirror. It's like there's no way to know who you are. There's no way for Fiona and Elliot in that dressing room to see what John Bryan and I saw looking at them. Like, you guys guys have it, whatever it is. I don't know. It's it's something that I've always remembered whenever I find myself beating myself up or telling myself that I don't belong to be someplace with these people or I don't belong to be on the stage. I just remind myself that they thought the same thing about themselves on that night when no one could have belonged more than they did.
1: That seems similar to your observation from earlier about the Kingston Trio and where you realized that they were just people. So how has that realization evolved and how has that informed your songwriting and how you approach music?
0: One thing that's always bothered me about the music world is that people are sold this idea that musicians are godlike or superhuman. Um, And I think it prevents kids from Believing that they can go out and do it, too. It lets people who are beloved musicians or artists get away with a lot of terrible things. Terrible, you know, behavior. It's always bothered me. Like, Mick Jagger is a human being. He has to eat food to keep surviving. He has to, you know, go to the bathroom whatever, like all these things. And granted, I'm sure his life is not as normal as most people's lives are.
1: It's a nicer bathroom.
0: Yeah. But Mick Jagger's, you know, and every artist that you love is still just a human being. So that said, when I am writing something and I get nervous that the thing I'm writing reveals too much of my own humanity, I remind myself that... One of my goals as an artist is to humanize the role of the artist. I want people to know that if they relate to something in my song, it's because I'm a person too and we are all going through some version of the same thing. And if if I'm talking about going through something that feels terrible, that it's like a version of what they're going through. And I don't know if I'm saying that the right way, but yeah, I think that what I learned when I looked at the struggling artists around me who were dealing with insecurity and self-hatred and all these things that, that we torture ourselves with, I've really wanted to let my art be human and be flawed and be a window into just another human being's soul and not act like I'm better than the listener or I'm untouchable, or that my life is perfect. And so if your life isn't, you should feel bad about it.
1: So, right, you moved several times to L.A. and then to New York. And it seems like that sense of place might have influenced your approach to songwriting a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: When I moved to L.A., it was very much when my life went from being... A life of squalor in South Dallas to being a life of, um, you know, relative comfort and living in cool places and going cool places. So, yeah, it was like my whole life took a step up. So I think that manifested itself in my songwriting God I don't even I'm not exactly sure how it did but I felt a change like I went from being defiant perhaps to feeling like I could address a lot more issues maybe dig deeper internally and then when I moved to New York I had been then in a band that had succeeded like really we'd never had a hit like our label made Third Eye Blind it had had mm-hmm. hits while we were on the same label but we had done everything that we'd ever really wanted to do. We'd gotten as big as X or, at the time, the Pixies. You know, I mean, whatever. We'd gotten as big as our favorite bands. Yeah. So even though I know within the upper levels of the Time Warner building, there were people that felt like we, we weren't succeeding. In our minds, we had succeeded. Yeah. So by the time I moved to New York... It coincided with like, our third record on Electra and my band having agreed to let me do a solo record, which was not without a lot of drama and fear and uh, growing pains. So yeah, that move to New York, which also coincided with me meeting and falling in love with the woman to whom I'm celebrating my 18th anniversary this month, was like a geographical marker, but at the same time, it coincided with my shifting into this sort of new latter-day version of myself, where now I'm going to be in a relationship and married and have kids. And so, yeah, so all of those things, the geography, I don't know if it's which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know if living in New York made me write songs like Hover or the kind of songs that appeared on the Instigator, or if it was that I was finally getting to make a solo record and I was finally falling in love, and, and then um, moving to New York was just something that happened kind of as part of that larger life shift. Like, I find that when I try and think about my songs too much after the fact. like what do they mean and and put them in boxes and uh, explicate the the lyrics? I get confused. Mm. I can't really do it. i uh, my mom does a great job of telling me what my songs are about. <laughs> but if it's up to me, I just, I start talking, and the next thing I know, I'm
1: lost. (laughs) That's understandable. And it should be up to the listener anyway, so your mom probably has the perspective there. Also, the music sounded so much different from anything the old 97s did on your first few solo records. And I think through your most recent record, which is The Messenger from 2018, I feel like there was a lot of evolution there, too. Is that just based on your own listening and tastes and evolution as a music listener and music fan? Or have you tried to push yourself in different directions over those years?
0: The difference between the solo records and the old 97s is is probably twofold. Um, The main thing is that the songs on the solo record, especially initially, now every once in a while I'll write one specifically for a solo thing, but mostly those songs are songs that I've presented to the old 97s, and they have rejected. And that's why I wanted to make solo records to begin with, because I had all these songs that I really thought were great and believed in, but the band was just, you know, throwing them away, and they were starting to really stack up. So that that was when, after we made Satellite Rides, I asked if I could go make a solo record, and that became The Instigator. So those songs were songs that the band wasn't interested in. So a lot of times what that means is that they don't sound like the kind of songs the band would do. And especially on the early solo records, I really wanted the sound of the albums to live in a world where the old 97s didn't live. I wanted it to be really clear to our fans because I know this from being a fan of artists, you know, and watching the singer go make solo records and then you're mad because they, then the band is broken up and th- it's like an either or, like it becomes a very contentious thing. I wanted our fans to know, oh... These records are going to be very different from the Old 97s records. So, Red Miller solo records are going to be kind of more poppy and weird and experimental and then the Old 97s records are going to be a four-piece rock band with a with a swingy drummer, you know, and a lot of high harmony ooze and a twangy Telecaster. Like I wanted it to be obvious why I had to make solo records to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um over the years a funny thing that's happened is the old 97s have wanted to be more of um, a garage band. And they've wanted to do a thing that's kind of more rock than twang. And so that opened up for me uh, some space in my solo stuff to make sounds that were more like what the old, old 97s kind of was. So then I've had on, especially like on The Traveler, I was able to use fiddles and, you know, kind of like more... Uh, swingy songs and so i was able to do things that originally had been it felt like old 97's territory and i had to really steer clear of that and now i can do more of that on my solo records and now i just don't think about it as much because now i don't think that our fans are as hung up on trying to you know figure out if i should be or if the solo records are something they should be upset mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. it seems like now Everybody's pretty cool with it. So I don't worry about it as much as I used to.
1: I appreciate that background, though. That's interesting to know because you're still making solo records, you're still making old 97s records. So it seems like that all worked out. I sense that it must take some amount of trust to have that open relationship with your bandmates to the point where they can be like, yeah, these songs, we don't want them, but you should write them. And then later, you know, you guys still keep making music together. Like it feels like that has to be a pretty strong relationship for that kind of stuff to occur.
0: Being in a band for 27 years is so unlikely, you know, especially if you never have the kind of massive hit where you're locked into the band, you know, where you're like, well, geez, if I don't do this, you know, the, there's an entire industry of people that are going to be without a job, and we're, you know, my, I have to pay for my yacht, whatever. This, it's been <laughs> a good job, and we've been pretty lucky. And I'm in a home right now that, you know, that I pay for with the old 97's career. But it's very much still like a marriage or like a long relationship where there are years that have been less fun than other years. And then there are some years and some experiences where you just can't even believe how great it is. Like we're just coming off of a recording experience, making this newest record we just finished, where none of us expected it to be as much fun as it was, you know, just because every time you go in, there's trepidation, there's fear, there's nerves. And we went in and we made a record that felt so good and it was so much fun to make. And it sounded different than anything we'd done before. It sounded different than, I think, what we expected it to sound like. And for me, and I'm always interested to see which songs the band will gravitate towards and latch on I did not expect them to pick the songs they picked. out. I mean, I brought them, as usual, I brought them, I don't know, 25, 30 songs. And the 12 that they picked are... Not at all the ones I would have thought, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it's so cool. And it's such a long now relationship. It's such a long experiment. The The results are so, you know, so spread out over so many years that it's it's really cool to see what we can still do after all these years. So even if the fan base doesn't like something or even if something doesn't click in the way it should, every time you make something new, you think... Maybe this will be the thing. And I don't know what it would mean for it to take a step to the next level. I don't know. Maybe that would mean like, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson decides to use a suite of songs from our new album as the soundtrack to his brilliant <laughs> Oscar-winning film. Or does it just mean that like, you know, Subaru uses one of our songs in their commercial? Or, or you know, who knows what it even means? We keep thinking that at one point, one of these records might, you know, bump us up a tax bracket. Mm-hmm. So far, that hasn't happened. But the cool thing is that we've never made the kind of record that felt like we were phoning it in. And we've never made the kind of record that felt like we were trying to do some sort of cheesy cash grab.
1: I want to ask about what you're up to now and and talk a little bit about the future. In addition to making all these albums, you wrote a children's book, No More Poems a book and verse that just gets worse. And you launched a podcast called Wheels Off. You've been, I think you're working on a novel, is what I heard. How do you balance all that stuff at this point with a family and everything else?
0: Yeah, I have never wanted for um, ambition but not—I don't think the kind of icy ambition that would have, you know, had me sort of doing market research on which haircut would sell more records or whatever. Uh, I, I just that kind of ambition where I'm always beating myself up that I've never finished a novel, you know, beating myself up that I've, you know, haven't done more. I, and I've gotten better about it—the beating myself up part—over the years. But I still do like doing a lot. So writing the book of children's poems uh, last year, or I guess I wrote it a couple of years before that, but having that book of children's poems come out last year felt great because it felt like I had had a crazy idea, I had put a lot of hours into trying to make it come together, and then I'd seen it through to fruition, to the point where I was able to get such a great illustrator, a Caldecott medal-winning illustrator, Dan Santat, who made the book this really beautiful thing. You know, even though there was some drama during the release of the book, you know, some moms decided I was a monster because in one of the poems, they thought I was inciting kids to violence or whatever. You know, it still was able to come out, find a lot of love with families and and librarians. And I won a couple of big awards at the end of the year. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean anything but it, it it made my mom happy you know it's the kind of thing i've always dreamt of writing a novel that's one of those things that i'm not even sure why i want to except that it's just always been a dream maybe i need to know why i want to before i can actually finish it when the pandemic started and we entered into lockdown in our house I thought, oh, this is it. This is finally my chance, and I really did put a few, a couple of weeks of work in. But um, it turns out the kind of anxiety <laughs> that something like this brings about is not conducive to making you want to wake up early and work on a novel. I'm just now trying to like figure out how to get people to show up at my online gigs. <laughs> so I do love to work. I do love to create. You know, the doing the wheels off podcast has been so inspiring to me. You know, um, I've been lucky that I've, I've got a couple of great producers, Kirsten and Nick, and they work super hard. Nobody's ever made one penny off of my podcast, but I know that for me, I get so much inspiration out of the conversations that I have because... Every single time I spend, you know, 30 minutes talking to somebody, there's at least one thing that gets said by my guest that I go back to and think about time and again and helps me be a better artist. So uh, there was something I said when I recorded the outro to the podcast when we very first started it two years ago. I didn't write a script, I just kind of said, whatever. Thanks so much for listening. Like and subscribe, whatever dumb stuff you're supposed to say. (laughs) But then at the end of it, I just tossed off a thing without really thinking. I said, create every day. And that's something that now has started to resonate with me because it's become like a personal mantra. Like I didn't really realize that that was what I was thinking as far as self-motivation. But I think that is something that I've always thought about. I want every day to do something creative. I want to make something every day because I think that in my darkest times as a young man who wanted desperately to die because there was no reason for us to be on this planet, so stupid, blah, blah, blah. The thing that I found that made me feel like there was a reason to wake up and to go on was the idea that I could make something, something that whether it was technically beautiful or not, was making the world a better place, because it was adding something new to it, and that that in itself was its own sort of beauty, and that that in itself was its own sort of meaning. And so that's what drives me every day. I want to create something every day, because I think that that not only makes the world a better place, incrementally perhaps, but is the thing that gives me a reason to keep waking up. Getting older is weird. I, You know, I've never felt old. Like, I always felt... When I started, I was always the youngest in the scene. Like, in Dallas and Deep Ellum, it was always teen folky, Rhett Miller opening for Lords of the New Church, teen prodigy. So... And I was always in bands with older people. My bandmates in the old 97s are all older than I am. Like, I've always felt like the kid. So now... I'll turn 50 this year. And as much as I feel like the kid, you can't argue that a 50-year-old is a kid, you know? <laughs> I might be immature, but I'm I'm not a kid. And um, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's something that I have to sort of actively try to make peace with. The idea that I'm not a dinosaur or a relic or that the art that I might make is still necessary like not just to me but maybe to the world. So when I feel bad about my own aging, inevitable aging, I remember the artists that I admire. I mean Willie Nelson is great. People point at the Rolling Stones and I think that's fine, but they're just such an outlier that that's that's not a business model mm-hmm. we can really aspire to. But I think Willie Nelson is the kind of business model that I can aspire to. You work hard You write songs throughout your career. You go out and you do gigs. You treat the people around you. I mean, the stories I've heard about Willie and the times I've interacted with him, my experience has been so positive. And he is a really positive guy, grateful, good to his uh, musicians, good to his crew. You know, that's a business model I can get behind. And he's only gotten better and um, I don't think he's an outlier. I think that he is maybe at the peak of that example, uh, of that model. But he, it, there's a lot of us out there sort of just fighting the good fight and trying to just wake up and work hard every day and try and make something good and try and make something that'll be useful to people and try and make something that will make the world a more beautiful place. I really love my job. I feel so grateful that I've gotten to do it. And I really want more than anything to earn the right to keep doing it tomorrow and next year.
1: Well, Red, this has been awesome. You spent a lot of time with us, so we appreciate it. And um, just thanks for joining.
0: Yeah, thanks. This is a super fun interview. I really appreciate you uh, digging
1: deep. Oh, yeah. Well, I had a lot of fun, and um, I'll thank all the people who helped at the end. Um, And stick around. We're going to have a couple songs from Rhett. Now here's Rhett Miller performing Lonely Holiday, The Human Condition, and The MTA by the Kingston Trio. You can find videos of these and all other past, present, future live performances on Osiris' YouTube channel at youtubecom Osiris Media. Enjoy.
0: <clears throat> all right. Howdy, y'all. My name is Rhett Miller. Welcome to my office. I'm going to sing y'all some songs. This one's called Lonely Holiday.
2: It a lonely holiday I was alone You were away In Fayetteville or in another state There's so many towns I hate when you leave me Breaks me like a bone But it's never as bad as when you get home I've thought so much about suicide Parts of me have already died Lonely Baby, I'm not alone baby I'm not I've got my imaginary friends happy baby I'm so happy baby I'm so I've got my imaginary I was afraid the bedroom walls were closing in Must be closing time again when you leave me Breaks me like the note that you said got stuck in your throat I've thought so much about suicide Parts of me have already died Lonely, baby, I'm not alone not i've got my imaginary friends happy baby i'm so happy baby i'm so i've got my imaginary friends and if you don't love
0: next up we have a song off my album The Messenger this is called The Human Condition
2: The human condition is misery you're crying from the moment you come out You might love and you might get loved But you'll always be alone I for one am glad you're still around You might die when you're young and you want to You might die when you're old and you don't You might live forever, one on the home. Tax man, he ain't got nothing on the reaper man Money's just a bright white shiny lie And the bottle is a black hole Where you fall and fall and fall There's no heaven, just a big blue sky You might die when you're young and you want to You might die when you're old and you don't. You might live forever. One can only hope. Don't get mad at me, I'm just a messenger. I'm only saying what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing is all too clear. But it's worth all of this misery. have you here with me The human condition is incurable No one here gets out here alive But these moments of transcendence are as close as we will get I for one am happy we survive You might die when you're young and you want to You might die when you're old and you don't You might live forever, one can only hope You might live forever, one can only hope
0: human condition all right Um, finally I'm gonna play a song for you by the Kingston Trio this is a song called the MTA like a lot of folk songs uh, I think this was based on the wreck of the old 97 which was uh, musically they're the same song Uh, the song that my band is named after the old 97s. so this is however the MTA by the Kingston Trio
2: Let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. Well, he put ten cents in his pocket, kissed his wife and family, went to ride out on the MTA. Charlie handed in his dime at the Kendall Square Station, and he changed for Jamaica plane. Oh, when he got there, the conductor told him one more nickel. Charlie couldn't get off of that train. But did he ever return? No, oh, never returned. And you're still unlearned. Well, he may ride forever in the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. Oh, now all night long, Charlie rides through the station crying, What will become of me? Well, how can I afford to see my sister in Chelsea or my cousin in a Roxbury? Charlie's wife
0: goes down to the Kindle Square station every day at a quarter past two.
2: And through the open window, she hands Charlie a sandwich as the train goes rumbling through. But did he ever return? No, he never returned. His fate is still unknown. He may. Ride citizens of Boston, don't you think it's a scandal? How the people have to pay and pay. Fight the fair increase both for George O'Brien for Charlie of the MTA, Or else he'll never return, no, oh, he'll never return and his faith will remain unlearned. you charlie
0: (laughs) all right thanks for joining us
1: past present future live is hosted and produced by rjb the executive producers are adam kaplan and kirsten kluthy production editing mixing and original theme music by brad stratton this podcast is presented by osiris media please visit osirispod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love